0: What is life's purpose? It's one of those deeply philosophical questions. Other the questions connected to it? Who am I and why am I here? Now, many have attempted to answer these kinds of questions. Just about every religion has some answer to them. So too has atheism and naturalism and determinism and relativism and postmodernism. Musicians, Hollywood, higher education, they've all weighed in. And then where would we be without social media? Plato finds ultimate purpose in the highest form of knowledge. Epicurus taught that its pleasures and happiness. You may recall Paul debating his followers in Acts chapter 17. Bentham created the rule of utility, that the good is whatever brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people, and Nietzsche declared that God is dead. He is something to overcome, proposing an existence empty of any meaning. If you're thinking about all this, and you feel like you need to scream... Well, you're not alone. There's a painting in which an artist describes it as the anxiety of the human condition. And he's attempted to capture this feeling in art. A man named Schopenhauer, a German philosopher, agrees with this. He says that all you have is reason, leading to anxiety, fear, and dread. Well, how we answer These big questions, it matters. Because people matter. People are eternal souls and they're searching. You remember perhaps Sean's testimony as we began service last week. He spoke of outreach at Western. And it reminds us that people are out there and they're looking and they're hungry. It reminds us that they're not the enemy. And they're caught in between, in the crossfire between Christ's church and Satan. And what he's done is he's twisted the screws of their minds and given people but nuggets of truth layered in lies. You and I, we have the answers to these questions. Because if you know the Lord of the word, and you know the word of the Lord, you can help people. But to do so, you and I need to first settle them in our own minds. Because often, and even in our minds, worldly philosophy, it creeps in. We have some strange mix at times of a biblical Christianity alongside secular worldview. And this morning, I mean to unravel that tangle so we can think clearly and we can share boldly. And God gives us answers the world does not have. This morning, his word answers two of life's biggest questions for the Christian. Our message comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Who am I, and what am I doing here? Well, the answer to this first question comes at the beginning and the end of this passage. It comes at the beginning of verse 9, and then in verse 10. And sandwiched in between is the answer to the second question, what is my purpose? Well, let me read these two verses to you this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness Into marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, our first question this morning is Who am I? And the first half of verse 9 answers this. And verse 10 does as well. These are truths for the Christian life, four characteristics. But before we look at them, we may be quick to do so, look at the first two words of verse 9. It's a contrast, but you, he writes. Now, in the first place, we again encounter the the corporate nature of New Testament writing. Last time, in chapter 2, verse 5, we learned that Christ builds his church. The focus there is not on us as individuals, but as a group or as, as a church, The emphasis is on community or this corporate aspect of what we do. And even today, then, all four of these characteristics, they refer to the group. And Peter's following other New Testament authors in this way. It doesn't quite fit with the Americanized or the individualistic Christianity of our day. And while it's true that that American Christians can and should point to elements of a strong spiritual life, they're good. They should be commended where they exist. A believer may say of their strong devotional time or a strong prayer time or how they give generously, and those things are good. But we can't miss the corporate aspect of the church, the corporate nature of the community God has called us to. And if we do, if they're missing in our list, then then something is missing according to the New Testament. Because Peter writes that a massive change transpired. It makes you one among many living stones, wrote Peter. And that God has taken them and is building them together into a church. And you and I are partnering in what Peter calls spiritual sacrifices of this new priesthood. And he now makes a contrast. He contrasts your former identity, your former community. Those things are behind you. They're gone. All that marks the lost of this world, it no longer marks the life of the believer. In verse 7, their disbelief. In verse 8, their stumbling. In verse 8, their disobedience. You are no longer that, says Peter, but you are this. Each description he gives stems from two major Old Testament passages, Isaiah 43 and Exodus 19. And each of these describes a new identity we have in Jesus Christ. You may recall we've spent some time on this back in chapter 1 as things got going. I want to make one more note before we submerge down into this passage this morning. Peter's going to draw parallels between Israel and the church. And some are going to read this to mean that Israel has replaced the church. or Excuse me, the church has replaced Israel. Somehow the Jews are no longer God's chosen people and the promises made to them are fulfilled in the church. Well, that's an incorrect conclusion. The church does not replace Israel. The two are distinct. They remain distinct. They can have similar characteristics, And we'll see that in our text this morning. To give you an illustration, an apple and an orange, they're both sweet and juicy. They both have skin. They both grow on a tree. They both are bought in the market, but they are different. They remain distinct, though they have common attributes. So it is with our passage today between Israel and the church. It's unnecessary and it's faulty to say that that the church has replaced Israel because they have common attributes. And more than that, the church will never replace Israel because of who God is. God is immutable. That means he does not change. God is unchanging in his promises, in his purposes, and in his person. The Bible teaches that he is a faithful God. He's promise-keeping. That when God elects, he never forsakes. And since God has elected Israel, he will never forsake her. So turning now, we want to answer this question, question one. Who am I? Well, firstly, Peter says, you are a chosen race. This comes from Isaiah chapter 43. In that passage, Isaiah predicts a time when Israel will go off into captivity. The people of God will be hauled off, and it's due to their covenant disobedience. But God does not leave them languishing. His discipline is a corrective discipline. It's meant to bring them back into the fold, to to renew the relationship, to right what's wrong. Isaiah predicts that God will bring them back. In chapter 43, verse 20, the beasts of the field will glorify me, says God, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. See, with Israel, with this nation, God created a brand new group. And skin color is often associated with the word race in our passage. That makes it a poor translation. The the word has more to do with being a descendant or even having a, a common ancestry with other people. We learned way back in chapter 1, verse 3, that God is our father and he's caused us to be born again. Well, that new birth ought to unite us. We have something in common. We have a a shared father and a similar heritage. But Peter, notice here, after stating this, he doesn't just move on to the next mark. In fact, in any of these descriptions, if you're following along, he could have simply said it and moved along. You are a race. A priesthood a nation but he doesn't do that does he he describes each of these traits a chosen priesthood excuse me a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation you see these words are key in understanding who you are in christ they give flavor to it they make this identity so much richer I mean, you know there's a world of difference between ordering a steak and a medium-rare steak. Peter reminds us that God has chosen his community. In fact, there is no one else who gets to choose his or her own family. His election, God's election, it impacts this community. In verse 1, chapter 1, we're chosen to obey Jesus. In verse 20, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. He was done so for our sake. That's implying some privilege. In chapter 2, God appoints in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and you and I are built into this spiritual house. For Peter's audience, this must have meant something because they were in the midst of their own Babylon, the Roman Empire. When they became part of God's chosen people, they had to cut ties with their former people. No more pagan religion. No more Roman entertainment. All the sensuality and the lust, the drunkenness, the carousing, the drinking parties, the abominable idolatries, Peter writes in chapter 4, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses and they malign you. What a comforting reminder this is for them. And it is for you and I as we consider where we are in our Babylon. I mean, if you're feeling it, if you're feeling different, it's because you are different. It's because God has set you aside with common ancestors in a different family for different purposes. And Peter wants us to know, when he answers the question, who are we? He wants us to know that we are a chosen race, you're not like them, you're different. Uh, secondly, we learn that we are a royal priesthood. And this has to do with privilege. We are a privileged community. But this mark of identity comes from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. I'll read these verses. As you hear them, there you'll find the final two characteristics in them as well as if you're reading through these characteristics of our identity. Through Moses, God spoke, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now we're going to see how Peter replies this to his audience. But before we do, I want you to to see two observations. In this passage, God already redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He had sovereignly delivered his chosen race, the nation Israel. He says he bore them on eagles' wings. What a picture. I mean, he literally carried them, providing for thousands through the desert. He delivered them, and he provided food for them. He sustained them. Secondly, God made a conditional covenant with Israel. If they obeyed him, if they kept his covenant, they would be blessed. And in the Old Testament, God has worked with Israel through covenants. That's how he related to her. That's just another word for agreements. And this covenant that he just made, that he made in Exodus, is called the Mosaic Covenant. It's delivered through Moses. It teaches Israel how to live before God. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, some unusual civil or religious laws. It's all about how they are to relate to God. But it also teaches what Israel should do when she fails. She's not going to keep it perfectly. In other words, God does not vaporize the nation immediately. Not when she sins or when she fails. Believe me, as Exodus later records, God is compassionate and gracious. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin. That means that where there's a breakdown, it's with the people and not with God. Now we fast forward to first century Asia, to Peter's people. Even to our day in 2023. We can think about any group of believers after the cross. We are under a new covenant. We are not under that same covenant, that Mosaic covenant called the law. It's instituted by the body and blood of Jesus. Like them, we live by faith under grace. And we are a royal priesthood, similar to that of the Old Testament, Israel. This is evidently important to Peter, this idea of priesthood. Back in verse 5, it's the reason we are built up into a church to be a holy priesthood. Their priests had, had many roles, but again, in the context of Exodus 19, it's this passage cited by Peter Israel was to be an obedient example. As a nation, she was to obey God and to be an example to other nations. In the time, only certain men could be priests. But at the same time, there was something about which everyone could participate. Of all the people on earth, God chose to redeem Israel. And she was to serve as an example to to other nations. They were to be able to look at Israel and see the beauty of the one true God and then turn and come to know him. That translates to us in our day, doesn't it? we too are to be obedient examples to the watching world. We're to function in a way that makes God great in the eyes of Bellingham and Whatcom County. In other words, if we love one another, if we faithfully obey, if we offer spiritual sacrifices, if we do that, God will draw believers unto himself. And if we fail to do that, God uses other churches that will. Israel, secondly, was to be a faithful intermediary. She was to be the go between between these nations and God. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, God says. The priests were to intercede between man and God, to talk to God on their behalf, to pray. That's also translatable to you and I. We were to be praying on behalf of our neighbors, on behalf of this watching world, these nations. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, "I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, they be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. That's a great challenge for you and I. Not what is our prayer life like, What is our community prayer life like? Because that's the context in which these things are written. What is our corporate prayer life like? How are we interceding for the world around us and maybe our small groups or our prayer gatherings? And again, to an earlier point, if we're doing these things at home, keep doing them. That is fantastic. We should continue to pray and have a, a robust personal prayer time if we want to call it that. But let us not excuse other aspects of the New Testament at the cost of that that we would continue to pray individually but also corporately because that's also the call upon the church. We know this too because our community desperately needs prayer. Bellingham, the county, the state desperately needs people to intercede for her to God. But don't miss either the privilege that's associated with this. Again, what kind of priesthood is Peter speaking of, it's a royal priesthood. Those two words are not supposed to go together. Priesthood and royal. Under the Old Covenant, the office of king and the office of priest, they were to be distinct and remain distinct. King Saul tried to mix them. that did not end well. King Uzziah is another example, and he got more than he bargained for. Allow me to read to you, Second Chronicles twenty six. When Uzziah became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, with eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and we will have no honor from the Lord our God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, And behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house being a leper for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. You see, the king and the priest, they could never be the same man. Mark that. The kings of Israel could not be both priests and king to try it out brought disease and isolation. And as time elapsed since then, moving forward to our time, as the centuries passed, the priesthood the priesthood declined, and it declined further and further. It's kind of like a boat that's unmoored from a dock; it just continues to drift very slowly farther away from land. It should have been that any foreigner could come to the temple and come to the priesthood and offer prayers to God, to pray to this one true God. Remember, Israel was to be a light to the nations, to be a light that drew nations unto the the Lord God. But the priests, over time, began to make their own rules about all this. And more rules pushed Gentiles farther and farther away. By the time that they were building the temple in Jesus' day, the priests themselves were learning the trade of masonry, so the Gentiles couldn't even come close to building that inner temple. So pure it had to remain in their eyes. When it was done, they threw up a dividing wall, and that made an area outside the temple called the Gentile court that was exclusively Gentile. They even threatened Gentiles. A sign read, no foreigner may enter the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blamed for the death which will ensue. In other words, you get too close to our temple, you get stoned. And they got so fanatical, they used this as a means of inciting a crowd. And in Acts 21, the Jews accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the sanctuary. It's so out of hand that Rome had to deploy troops to cool him down. So think then how far Christ brought us. He tore down the sign. He leveled the wall. He tore the veil. In our passage, he made Gentiles Christians. He made Christians priests. And he made priests royal. We are now irrevocably attached to the court of the king, a place that no person in the history of redemption was able to be. So do you see your privilege this morning? You are of a royal priesthood, writes Peter. That is your identity. Thirdly, we read that we are a holy nation. Again, this comes from Exodus chapter 19. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We learn that God formed the nation of Israel. We know he did this. Nations share similar culture, similar geography. Nations carry some kind of collective identity. They have a shared history. Well, God forms us into a nation in a similar way. You and I share similar culture. We have a Lord's Day worship. We share communion. We pray and we evangelize. We have a similar geography. Like Peter's audience, you and I reside as aliens. We're we're scattered across the globe, and our citizenship is in heaven. We, too, carry a collective identity. We have faith in the gospel. We're transformed by the power of God. We embrace God's word as truth. And we have a shared history. We've carried the baton of faith passed down to us from generations preceding. But once again the modifier tells us what kind of a nation we must be. We are a holy nation. Israel did not live as a holy nation. She did not live set apart. She was not an example. She did not draw other nations unto God. In fact, she adopted their ways. She became a servant to their gods. In Psalm 106 verse 35, they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. Now as a result, division followed for the nation of Israel. It happened inside and it happened from outside. Instead of securing the land as they were supposed to do, the the nation adopted their pagan customs and their worship. By the end of Judges, a civil war almost destroys one of their tribes. And when God's kings refused to follow God's words, the nation split. It was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Jeroboam, one of the kings, decided himself that he had to build his own place for worship, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple. That's not his call to make. And when the nation continued to refuse repentance, Assyria drug off Israel and Babylon drug off Judah divine discipline in exile for disobedience because God keeps his promises. Are we this morning going to serve God as a holy nation? Or will we, like they, blend popular fads with scriptural mandate? Are we going to divide and not turn from the sins of First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We discussed that a few weeks ago. Are we going to absorb local religion, just like other churches do? They staple a rainbow flag to their building so you know who they are. And this morning, Israel has no temple and no priesthood. They have no witness and no faith in their Messiah. And her failure to live as a holy nation, it is a lesson for you and I. That God takes holiness seriously. And he takes it seriously among his people. That he is called and he set aside for such a thing. You and I must be distinctive. Not like the people in the world around us. Who are we? Well, we must be a holy nation, writes Peter. Peter. Well, fourthly, we're to be a people for God's own possession. The reference for this isn't quite as explicit as the first three, but it is again alluded to in Exodus and Isaiah just as we read. In chapter 19 verse 5 of Exodus, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. In Isaiah 43:21, God speaks of the people who I formed for myself. God has acquired a people. And he chose who they would be. And he purchased them, and he, he preserves them, and he protects them. That's all bound up in that word for possession in the language, the original language. And by the way, if you have a King James Version, don't get too thrown here. It does not read what I read a people for God's own possession, but instead calls us simply a peculiar people. It's not very flattering. In fact, you may know someone who supports this translation. But the point is that we speak differently today than they did in King James' era. We talk differently in the 21st century than they did in the 17th. Uh, It's better translated, we are a people for God's own possession. Peculiar as that might be. But again, the point that Peter makes here is that you and I belong to God. That Peter, again, is hammering home the corporate nature of our faith. Each marker of your identity is a group word. We're a chosen race, not a chosen individual. We're a royal priesthood, not a royal priest. We're a holy nation, not a holy citizen. We're a people for God's own possession, not person. And you know then that God does not give out superpowers or or capes or even secret identities. Nowhere in verse 9 are we called to be superheroes. That's not our identity. Instead, In our weakness, he's given us one another, corporately. Where one lacks a gift, another excels. Where one mourns, another comforts, and the list goes on. But most of all in this description, it all belongs to God. It is God's possession. We belong to God. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'd say in the first place, and far in advance in the first place, the Christian life is about God. That means that we are not a church for our own possession. We belong to God. We are here for God. Our worship, the Lord's Day, it is for God. It is not for us. The music that we sing it is not for us. It is for God. Even the acts, the acts of service that we perform... Great as they may be for other people, ultimately, they too are for God. Because all of this is God's possession, and it belongs to God. And we should do it for God's glory. You see, God holds the deed on his church. We might say it that way, that we are not here for ourselves, but we are here for God. When we come on Sunday morning, we come to give, not to get. We do come to get, but far in advance, in first place, is God. It's about God. Then way down here, it's about us. And as we do that, as we make it about God, we will be filled. We'll be filled more fully. We'll be filled more heartily. And we'll be filled beyond imagine when we make it about God rather than make it about ourselves. Don't shortcut that. Finally. We've been working through these characteristics of verse 9. But before we go to our purpose, I want you to see one more. I I realize we've exhausted them in verse 9. I want you to see one down in verse 10. I want to add it to this list. It's the last description of our identity. Peter writes, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now Peter's going over to the book of Hosea. Peter quotes from the book of Hosea. If you recall back in chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes about the prophets. And we learn that they do some pretty unusual things. Part of their job was not only to convey a message or communicate it, but to do it in oddly memorable ways, very impactful and vivid ways. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, God spoke to Hosea. Go, Take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant har- harlotry, forsaking the Lord. The unfaithfulness that Hosea would experience was an illustration of the unfaithfulness God experienced from his people Israel. And after a son, his wife Gomer then has a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rahumah for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. And her name means literally she is not loved. No more comash, compassion but, but judgment to an unrepentant Israel. That's the message God is sending. Gomer gives birth to a third child, a son. And the Lord said, name him lo For you are not my people and I am not your God. His name means literally, I am not, I am to you. Back in the book of Exodus, God revealed himself to Moses saying, I am who I am. God revealed himself to Moses this way, and he's saying, listen, Israel, because of your unfaithfulness, I am not God to you anymore. But in all of this, God also predicts a renewal And in the imagery of a farmer, he says, I will sow her for myself in the land, speaking of Israel. I will also have compassion on her, who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Peter applies this then to the church, to the Gentiles. You and I have been redeemed, firmly planted in the soil of the gospel. And in the light of God's mercy, we are fruitful and we are growing. Compassion and mercy, they're really interchangeable words, both have to do with being in distress. God reaches down to rescue those in distress. It's compassion, it's mercy. Are you in distress this morning? Because if you are, God is very real and God is very present to those in distress. In fact, it may be that God has brought you into distress so you could experience the kindness and the warmth of his mercy. The Bible teaches us that there is sin in this world, and we feel its effects. With broken people in a broken world and broken societies, sin has penetrated our own hearts. We ourselves sin. And we break God's law and this separates us from God. It brings the judgment of God upon us because we've broken his law. And the best first thing that you could do is to see this, to understand this, and to believe this. Because if you know that you are not right with God, and if you see your need for God, you are at a good, good place because the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved you will be saved from the judgment of God you will no longer receive his judgment but rather his mercy the compassion of God and you'll be forgiven of your sins and made right with him for all of eternity that is the promise of God in the person of Jesus so who are we? Well, we are a chosen, privileged, distinctive asset of God who's received mercy. But what am I doing here? Verse 9, the second part. Everybody's going to answer this question, by the way. Everyone has a worldview, and the worldview interprets how they respond to this. But God will tell us our purpose. We don't have to wonder why am i here so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light we were redeemed with a very specific purpose in mind now there's more to this purpose than just verse nine for example if you look back into verse five we learned that god made his people the priesthood why did he do that to offer up spiritual sacrifices And as you read across the Bible, and the New Testament in particular, you'll consider or you'll encounter these purpose passages, reasons that we're here, things we ought to do in the name of the Lord. So in verse 9, Peter has just laid out our identity or our identity markers. This is who we are. Now, as a result, we respond. We've been given a new identity for a new purpose to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Now we heard this, maybe went by quickly, but it was in our passage earlier in Isaiah. It was 43 verse 21. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. To proclaim is to declare or to announce or to report Greek authors used it in the time of Peter outside the Bible. It was a messenger who went somewhere else abroad and made an announcement. The only time it's used, this word in the Greek, is right here in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. However, in the Old Testament, when it was translated from Hebrew into Greek, it appears nine times in eight are in the Psalms. Three times it's in the context of worship. That means three times it happens in the corporate setting when the people of God are gathered. And then, elsewhere, it's a proclamation. A proclamation of God's righteousness, of God's works, of God's judgments, of God's ways. One time, David proclaims his own life to God. And we're going to get to all why that, why that matters in just a minute. But looking to excellencies, this word is a little more vague. We might get proclaimed, but excellencies, well, just about every Bible version has its own word for this. To proclaim his praises, his mighty acts, his virtues, his wonderful deeds, the list goes on. Outside the Bible, the Greeks had their own gods, and whenever they used this word... They used it to proclaim the manifestation of their God's power. Do you know the manifestation of your God's power? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the person of Christ. So if you bring all of this together then, our purpose for being here, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us, we declare the gospel to unbelievers. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us, we announce God's deeds to other believers. We do this, for example, when we stand and we sing. We are singing to God and to one another. And to proclaim the excellencies of the God who called us, we use our words. Because what have we heard? Preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Believer, words are always necessary. The Bible calls us to both, really, to live lives like we believe the words we preach, but never neglecting to preach the words we believe. We need to live lives that proclaim the gospel, but we also need to speak forth the gospel. No one's going to come to Saving Faith by just watching us drive down the street going the speed limit. So today we learned who you are and why you're here. And both questions have been answered by God in this passage through Peter. And we learned that God has given us a new identity. And that new identity is given to us for a very specific purpose so we can proclaim who God is. So, I want to begin, or I want to end where we began. And going back to this idea of philosophy, I want you to think about what you think. What drops of a worldview cloud your identity this morning? What is it about the world that's intruding upon your faith and your beliefs? What are you believing that are lies or not Bible truth? What weeds have come up that hinder your proclamation of him who called you? What is interfering with your ability to to live a life that honors Jesus Christ and to speak forth this good news gospel he's given us? Well, this morning, let this passage purify you with the clean water of Scripture and, and weed out anything that causes you to stumble. And go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and the great name for those who need it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray if there be any who don't know who they are in Jesus Christ, that you would use this meager offering of a message to shape and form their thinking. That your Holy Spirit would take his word and apply it to their minds in deep and profound ways that each would know exactly who they are because of you. I pray, Father, if we struggle this morning to know our purpose in life, if we are living for any one of a myriad of reasons to live, I pray that we would not lose the most important thing, and that we would live exclusively for the purpose to which you called us. And let everything flow from that, Father. Help us to order our lives based on your word and based on your purposes. And Father, you've been so kind to call us and make us a race and a nation and a priesthood and your possession. Please grant us a grace to go and live that way. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.